Seek and destroy Metallica, as always, we seek out to destroy. We aim to seek out and destroy corruption on the show. Starting in the 2016 Miami Beach, uh, Winwood uh, neighborhood, um, because of the Zika uh, epidemic and uh, the spraying of the uh, toxic pesticides. I heard them buzz right over my head. We just ended with Kevin Galilei. Um, some great writings he's putting out and taking uh, various uh, global government organizations to task. That would include one that resides in, the, in uh, at the Vatican, the Holy See. Uh, he dives into the uh, United Nations and how uh, they are uh, uh, developing uh, what is a sustainability uh, globalization agenda, uh, decarbonization, uh, and he gets into uh, something that is a touchy subject, but that would be uh, one of... Uh, uh, a population agenda, rather a depopulation agenda, therefore. Uh, right now, standing by is William M. Arkin, American political commentator, best-selling author, journalist, activist, blogger, and former U.S. Army soldier. Going to bring him on. He's been an affairs analyst for L.A. Times, Washington Post, and New York Times. Uh, bring him on right now. This is Ian Trottier. You're listening to Discussions of Truth. I'm here every Wednesday. Uh you can uh, find uh, find more about the program at discussionsoftruth.com or uh, go right to my website, iantrotier.com, I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. All right, going into Skype, and uh, I'm rededicating this program, as I dedicated last hour, to uh, the late, rest in peace, uh, Mr. Dennis B. Okay, folks, uh, William Arkin. Hey there. William, nice to connect with you. Welcome to Discussion of Truth. This is Ian Trottier. How are you today, sir? I'm great. You can uh, call me Bill on the on the interview. Okay, fantastic. I was uh, I was I was thinking uh, perhaps I uh, should ask you that question. So thank you for addressing it, um, Bill. Um, you have a, a, a an incredible uh, career, and uh, you've written a, a book that caught my eye. And as we had uh, previously mentioned, a book that had caught my eye, I think, is incredibly applicable uh, to twenty twenty. Um, I think it's what in the neighborhood of four or five years old now. You can correct me if that's uh, inaccurate. Uh, American coup: How a terrified government is destroying the Constitution. Would you take a moment, and for listeners that are not familiar with your work, please take a moment and introduce yourself. And um, and then I'd like to to address, of course, what's happening in your view in across the uh, across the nation. Well, I wrote American Coup as a follow-on to Top Secret America, which was a project I worked on with the Washington Post and with Dana Priest. 
uh, my uh, partner in writing that uh, three-year three investigation, which then turned into a book about the growth of, uh, well, Top Secret America since 9-11, both the contracting world, but also the growth of the intelligence community and the counterterrorism world, including Homeland Security. I felt after we did Top Secret America that we hadn't really addressed the domestic situation sufficiently, and I wanted to write about Homeland Security and the measures for everything from continuity of government to martial law to uh, counterterrorism, domestic spying, etc. And I wrote American Coup in order to do that. And it's funny because uh, looking back now, uh, both at the events of uh, 2020 and then what I had written at the time, uh, I think that uh, I would have never said to you I expected that the actual domestic war plans, that is the making of America into a, into a battlefield, uh, would be implemented in the context of a pandemic. But in fact, what we saw in March of 2020 was the implementation of a whole a handful of different war plans, a pandemic war plan, a war plan for defense support of civil agencies, a war plan for continuity of government, a war plan specifically for um, governance in the uh, District of Columbia and the National Capital Region in an emergency, and then finally a war plan for civil disturbance operations, which had already been implemented at least in its rudimentary stages long before George Floyd was killed, hmm. uh, but then became ever so more important, especially in the District of Columbia, uh, as those uh, plans sort of took shape. And the two main points that I feel like I made in American Coup, uh, one that uh, the best way for the United States uh, to deal with domestic strife and domestic problems uh, was to be as transparent as possible. That is that we should know what these plans are. We should know what these operations are because that's what gives them credibility in the eyes of the public. Uh, that certainly did not happen in 2020. If anything, uh, once the D.C. National Guard and the I don't even know what to call it. The disorder in Washington, D.C. took shape uh, at, the, at the beginning of June. Uh, we, we really saw uh, uh, an enormous amount of confusion and disagreement as to the chains of command and what was required. And so that transparency and also like the whole idea behind creating these new structures post 9-11, which was to make things work smoothly and to make things right. work operate smoothly had failed and then the second point was uh, that that in the shadows of america behind the scenes n not our elected officials but people who operated the superstructure of uh, homeland security and continuity of government and civil disturbance operations etc that these people had become ever more powerful and that uh, they, in many ways, were the real decision makers, that the elected officials uh, were not the real decision makers. And if we 
saw anything on June 1st of 2020 with the mayor of the District of Columbia essentially being brushed aside by the federal authorities, but not just the mayor being brushed aside. We observed really an American coup, and I mean that in the sense that it is a uniquely American coup. It's not martial law as we conceive of it when we think of it in the Middle East or in Africa or Latin America with some general taking over. It was more a, a uniquely uh, type of martial law with an American branding in which faceless bureaucrats were in charge and in which, in which uh, people who we did not even see were in charge. And, and, and the president and Attorney General Barr and General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs mm -hmm. of Staff, were merely props, if you will, in a system that was going on in the background. So that's that's a loaded statement, and of course it hits directly where I'd like it to hit. Um, it's It's been a number of weeks now, but uh, former, uh, now retired U.S. Ar uh, Air Force Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, who's uh, recently written a book, Stealth War, How China Took Over While America America's Elite slept and I think we can uh, draw a parallel perhaps to uh, to these uh, to this kind of machine that's that's behind the scenes uh, it's certainly a well organized and, and well oiled machine but I but but bill I, I asked Robert I, I, I said it look is has 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 the United States been infiltrated that's exactly what I asked him and he said yes in a very stealth Way, what are your thoughts on that comment? This is coming from a retired Air Force brigadier general. Well, if you mean infiltrated by foreigners, the answer is no. Um, if you mean infiltrated by a, a powerful uh, government, and, and some people call it a deep state, uh, that operates regardless of who is elected and operates... Right in accordance with its own rules and its own plans, then yes. And, 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 you know, it's very clear. I think most Americans, even people who are not, uh, very concerned with, uh, these matters of governance can see clearly that in less than a week, the National Guard across the United States mobilized almost as many people as they did in three months of preparedness for coronavirus. So almost the same number. And uh, that really shows you that when it comes to the mission of, uh, of, of civil order and guns, uh, the National Guard and the military is at the ready uh, and that it's the wrong institution when it comes to a pandemic that, yes, the military can provide some degree of backup in terms of the 5,000 or so doctors and nurses who were sent out into the streets of America, and they can provide some uh, backup in terms of logistics and transport, uh, engineering, et cetera. But in terms of like, wow, send in the military, like the military somehow is going to be the key institution in responding to coronavirus. What what we saw 
in 2020 was that they were exactly the wrong institution, uh, that they were not really have much to contribute to a public health crisis. And, and even the National Guardsmen who were deployed, and, and you know what, my hat's off to them, but they were mostly engaged in work that anyone in a public health service capacity uh, could have uh, been engaged in. So, so what we see is, is, is a, a sort of romanticism, if you will, about the military and its capacities um, that was sort of laid bare with coronavirus. Uh, they did not ultimately deploy uh, as many people to respond to coronavirus as they did to Hurricane Katrina. Mm. That was one event in, in, in three states. Uh, and they barely uh, deployed more National Guardsmen and women than they did during 9-11. And that was an attack in just uh, three locations as well. So so I think you get a sense that, let's just say that 45,000 or so National Guardsmen and women is about the total of the number that is available to be deployed. Now, you might ask what happens to the other 1.4 million men and women in uniform where less than 1% of the active duty force was ever deployed for coronavirus. And my answer to you is, well, that's the way it should be. The military should be for warfare and not for our civil needs. And that, in fact, what coronavirus revealed was that we need to build up our civil capacity, not to provide more money to the military. But when it came to the rioting specifically, mm -hmm. what we saw was how quickly the military both mobilized and assumed greater and greater responsibilities and how the governors relied upon those military forces, even if they were very careful to say that they were under governor control, even if they were very careful not to federalize those forces and, and as we saw when President Trump suggested that he was going to invoke mm -hmm. the Insurrection Act and federalize forces or bring federal troops onto the streets of America, everyone freaked out. But it was a kind of, it was a kind of uh, theater, if you will, because we already had military forces on the streets of America, uh, almost absolutely synonymous with our active duty forces, the same people who had previously been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan and other war zones around the world. The distinction being between the National Guard and the active duty military these days uh, merely being kind of pro forma. And, and though it's important that, uh, that the governors maintain uh, control over the National Guard, and I ultimately support that, I, I feel like we are fooling ourselves a bit if we think that we've kept the military out of coronavirus response and out of the responses to civil unrest. The military has been involved in many ways behind the scenes, reconnaissance, command and control, logistical support, et cetera. And, and though we might not see those troops on the streets, and certainly in America, we're never going to see tanks on the streets. The truth of the matter is uh, that the military is a ready and available force, and it's well-funded and well-prepared to take on those responsibilities. Yeah, we're looking at, of course, two 
two different things, a, a, a medical uh, pandemic, health pandemic, and of course the, these protests that have become violent and, and the looting and the rioting. But um, backing up a bit, uh, what is uh, American coup? What is the government terrified of uh, enough to shred the Constitution or, or rather destroy it? What are they exactly terrified of? Well, I, I think what has happened over a a long period coming even out of the nuclear era mm -hmm. and the civil defense apparatus, which was created in the 1950s, uh, was a, a system of continuity of government, which got bolstered after 9-11, that there needed to be not just continuity of government at the federal level, but even continuity of government at the state and local level. So this has been a cottage industry has, that has grown since 9-11. And continuity, of course, is useful. It's what keeps, in theory, the roads moving and the, and the Internet open and uh, the critical infrastructure protected. Uh, but in reality, what we've seen on the national level is the creation of a kind of alternate uh, for, form of government uh, those who would be prepared to take on responsibilities for the governing of the nation uh, were President Trump to be killed or were uh, the White House to be disabled. or And and we mostly think of that first in the context of obviously a, a Russian or Chinese attack or a right. nuclear war. And then second, we think of it in terms of a terrorist strike in which there would be a an immediate and catastrophic requirement for some alternative. But I, I think what we saw on June 1 of this year with President Trump running to the bunker, if in fact it's true, and that's even an interesting question, uh, is that an apparatus began to be implemented that probably somebody in their right mind should have said, hold on, what are we doing? Why, why are we even implementing continuity of government protections. Um, that's not the message we want to send to the American people. It's not what's required. Uh, these protesters are not going to come across the gates of the White House and attack this building. And, and so, in a way, what I worry about is I worry that by putting so many troops on the streets of Washington, uh, ultimately National Guard were deployed from 13 different states into Washington, D.C. Uh, police forces were mobilized from the entire federal government and from local forces, including from Virginia and Maryland into the district, et cetera, is that the reaction itself begins to tell its own story. And it's an overreaction, and it's an overreaction that's predicated upon a picture of the threat that is misleading, uh, misleading and, and dangerous. So those protesters did not really threaten the White House or federal institutions, but there was a terrible cycle that was introduced with the large-scale mobilization of the Guard and uh, the large-scale mobilization of the police, which is that they fed off of each other, the violence, the protesters, the police, the guard, they, they kind of affirmed each other's importance, if you will. And so that I think that the protesters were bolstered by the, the, the size, degree, and, and actions of those who were given the mission of protecting the federal government. And 
those who were given the mission of protecting the federal government acted as if the guard acted mm -hmm. as if the protesters were in fact a threat. And so they, they sort of built upon each other in this, in this corrosive way. And, and again, why does that happen? It happens because you already have plans in place that says this is what happens when there's mm -hmm. a, a breakdown, a civil breakdown. And, and those plans, to tell you the truth, I mean, this is what I believe, they should just be public so that, so that we can debate what the plans are sure. so that when an event like this occurs, everyone's clear as to what's going to happen so that when it happens, uh, the public doesn't freak out and say, uh, who's in charge? Uh, what's General Milley doing there, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Why has Attorney General Barr been put in charge of all of this? What is the status of the D.C. National Guard? Who commands it? What's his chain of command, et cetera? All of which, even to this day, are uh, open questions and ambiguous questions. And then, of course, the Pentagon, which really failed on June 1st, really failed big time, uh, got just pushed around by uh, the White House and by the events, if mm -hmm. you will, which is the worst of all possible things. What you want is you want uh, a military force in particular to have clear orders and clear chains of command when, in fact, there's a breakdown. You served the United States as an Army soldier. Um, what are you... What is going through your mind in seeing your homeland? I'm assuming that you served, I'm assuming, correct me again, that you served abroad. Um, you can describe that capacity if, if you'd like for listeners. But what's going through your mind here? You'd mentioned martial law. I believe you mentioned it a couple times uh, so far. Uh, what's going through your mind here seeing what's happening to your country on, on the homeland? Now, uh, I'll insert this. Uh I had befriended once. It's been a number of years. He's a former ranger, and uh, he'd gone into Baghdad, and he felt like the war he fought over there has simply uh, the jihad and, and these other uh, Islamic-based uh, uh, type threats that that uh, that are certainly prevalent, seem to be prevalent in, in, in the homeland here. Of course, there's no association to current events uh, that we know of, or at least that I know of by fact. Um, he says, the, the war that I that I fought there has, has come home. Well, it, what are you seeing, Bill? What are you seeing? What's going through your mind as you as you see uh, these current events unfold in, in your country? Now, of course, we're 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 putting together two events that are massive, major, massive. Thirty million people unemployed uh, are, are filed for unemployment. I think the number might be higher than that. Um, we've got, of course, this global pandemic, and then it, it's almost yeah. I remember Rodney King. And that was a major, major issue. But it, the, 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 it didn't seem there was some maybe minor loo looting. Uh, I say minor because I wasn't affected, but uh, some minor looting, uh, some violent acts that came with that. But nothing of this, uh, of, of this scale. Um, is it, is it that there are thirty million people not working and everybody's uh, being confined to their homes? That this has happened under that time, George, George Floyd innocently. It perhaps lost his law, lost his life under under this situation, and so it's caused this boom fireball to explode. Um, regardless, as a as a former soldier for the U.S. Army, what's going through your mind watching this uh, transpire through through your through your land? Well, I, I think the answer is is really quite simple, and I know that a lot of people don't want to hear it, but 
our country is over-militarized. Yeah. And, and yeah. we see that in coronavirus, both in the importance that the military played or was supposed to have played in the response that I think really uh, is uh, robbing civil society of adequate response. So in other words, every penny that we're paying for the Pentagon to respond to coronavirus is a penny that we should have paid to a public health service and a vibrant mm. civil response capability. So, and then second, I think as the, as the protests spread across the country, and again, it was really unprecedented. Let's, let's remember that. I mean, there were simultaneous protests in more than 100 cities and almost every state in the union. Uh, there was really very little capacity for um, the guard or the governors and states to call in reinforcements and help from adjacent states because those adjacent states themselves were dealing with civil unrest. So we had for the a few days a very unique situation uh, where, where within a week or so, almost 40,000 National Guardsmen were activated and, and tens of thousands of active duty military forces were employed to uh, give them backup in terms of uh, logistics, transportation, et cetera. And it really is an unprecedented mobilization. I hope it will be studied more clearly. But the most important feature of it that I think we should take away is that once you start putting those guys on the streets of America, you better have already written very clear rules of engagement and plans as to what they're supposed to do when they get onto the streets. And to me, that wasn't clear. Uh, to, to me, that's where we really failed. And what was the distinction between the guard and the police and what role the guard was there to play that the police wasn't there to play uh, was, the, was the deployment of the military seen as a soothing element of the response. In other words, if there was a lot of anger against law enforcement and people in dressed in blue, uh, did it make a difference that people were dressed in green? Was there a greater sense of security and confidence on the part of the public that the federal government had their back? That wasn't clear. And that's sort of the genesis and the whole point of the Insurrection Act, right? The federal government comes in when the state government fails mm -hmm. to uh, secure the civil rights of the population. The Insurrection Act was implemented, for instance, in the 1950s and 60s to enforce federal law for desegregation of the United States. And under President Eisenhower and others, uh, the National Guard and federal forces were brought in in order to ensure that states that didn't want to implement uh, desegregation were forced to implement desegregation. So it was a sort of message that the federal government is behind you. It's on your side. Mm -hmm. It's securing your civil rights. And I think that that was lost in this 2020 uh, reaction, that people didn't see uh, the National Guard as any different than the police. And, and quickly, as you saw, uh, the National Guard kind of disappeared from the scene. It was a, it was a quick overreaction. And then uh, it, it, was, it was as quick almost of a demobilization, getting the guardsmen out of the way and out of, out of, out of the headlines, if you will, because in fact they are the wrong force 
in order to uh, in order to enforce the law in America. So, so to me, when I look at the United States uh, as somebody who had some experience in the army, as somebody who studied this for the last forty years, uh, what I see is 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 a, 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 this unfortunate uh, chain of events that we have. Uh, taken nuclear warfare and the nuclear era and then the legacy of 9-11 and created this superstructure for the apocalypse uh, that then gets employed for things that are nothing at all like Mm -hmm. the apocalypse, nothing at all like the kind of crisis for which those structures have been created. And yet we can't really separate them out. And Mm -hmm. so... And so I, I, I think that I hope that the end result of all of this will be a relook at what the function and purpose of U.S. Northern Command is, a command that was created after 9-11, uh, a relook at, at whether or not the, the National Guard is adequately trained for the actual missions, the domestic missions that it, it is uh, sent out there to do. For instance, we've spent a lot of money and a lot of time and energy preparing the National Guard in what's called consequence management of dealing with WMD. Well, do, do we really need to expend all that time and energy on WMD or as a pandemic and other types of uh, uh, man-made uh, disasters and natural disasters really the more likely mission that the National Guard is going to be faced with? And then finally, what is the role of the active duty military in the domestic uh, environment, especially in Washington D.C., especially in the national capital region, where where we saw on June first that the chain of command was unclear, where we saw that the president was making pronouncements that uh, even his own top officials disagreed with, uh, where we saw the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's somebody who's not in the military chain of command, who's not the commander of any forces walking the streets of of Washington, D.C., as if he were in charge, Uh, and where we saw the elected official, the the mayor of the District of Columbia, brushed aside uh, in the name of a law and order when, in fact, there's no evidence whatsoever that that was required or even was the right thing to do. And so to me, I, I, I say, sadly, in 2020, uh, that the that one of the lessons of coronavirus is that we not only rely too heavily upon the military, but that we do so at the expense of civil society and civil government. And that, and that, and that when I see the tragedy on the Navajo reservations in Arizona and New Mexico, or I see uh, the inability to uh, deal with. Uh, ventilators or, or staffing of emergency rooms at hospitals in the early stages of, of coronavirus. I, I think where is our adequate funding of, of a public health reserve, of a, of a public health service that uh, can actually uh, respond to these kinds of crises, that we have taken money away from civil society and given it to the military, uh, a, a military that is still essentially structured to refight World War II and, and really doesn't have uh, neither the skill sets nor the equipment nor the training uh, nor the proclivity towards uh, being of much assistance in when civil society needs help. So very eloquently said, very well said, uh, Bill. Let's, um, let's shift to some resolution here. Um, 
in your view, uh, what are some resolution? And uh, defunding police seems to be one that uh, is supported by uh, many Americans uh, and uh, toppling some of these uh, historical figures uh, in, by means of taking statues down. Um, you know, the Confederate flag, that's, that's one thing I was surprised to see that uh, still, still being waved. Uh, but uh, that's just me. Uh, what's um, what is wh- how does America move forward here? Uh, how does America become more united instead of uh, what it seems to be becoming increasingly divided? Well, we certainly need to see a wholesale reform of law enforcement, particularly at the urban level. But one of the things that I described in American Coup was that there are eighteen thousand police forces across our nation, that this is the perhaps the most decentralized system of all government that exists in our country. Mm. Uh, sheriffs, uh, uh, police departments, urban, local, overlapping county, city and town jurisdictions, crazy patchwork that has been created over time, some elected, some appointed, some without much oversight, others with lots. So the police of our nation certainly needs to be uh, given a thorough review. I think that will happen as a result of of, of these protests. Uh, as for the question of of uh, eradicating um, the symbols of uh, of the Civil War and 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 what people consider to be offensive symbols, I, I'm not a fan. Uh, I, I first of all, I believe that we should be more confident that the outcome of the Civil War, in fact, created a country that is working steadily towards greater integration and racial harmony, that we didn't lose the Civil War. And so therefore, we don't have to uh, right. take down statues in order to achieve some kind of visual reparations, that, uh, that that history is important and we shouldn't erase that history, that we should be much more confident about the outcome of the Civil War. Are there still racists in society? Sure, in spades. But the reality is uh, that we can't eliminate racism by just sort of erasing the symbols of the Civil War and then making believe like we've achieved an actual goal. Uh, the second thing I would say is it, it, along the same lines of kind of the, the I don't know what to say, the symbolic uh, movements that we're making towards uh, uh, ending racism uh, is that I think that there's a divide in our nation between the urban and non-urban population. Uh, and that is already reflected in in the red state blue state divide. It's already reflected in the Democratic Republican divide. It, it was reflected in the coronavirus prevalence across the nation. And 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 we have to somehow figure out a, a greater integration of 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 our urban and rural uh, areas across the country. It, it it seems to me again that if we spend so much time and energy uh, dealing with the symbolic uh, uh, symbols of of racism and not with the the actual uh, consequences and causes of racism at the the human level, uh, then we're going to lose this opportunity to actually have change and and reform, and it's just going to fall apart. And for those who disagree with me, who think that it is important to pull down a Civil War statue or, or, or pull down a, a Confederate uh, uh, symbol, 
because they feel aggrieved by that, I say to them, what happens if, if, if in our society, say, people who are devoutly religious uh, decide that, that, that it aggrieves them to see symbols of, of gay mm. America? You know that they don't like rainbow flags. That they that, that to them that kind of uh, symbology equally assaults their sensitivities and their and is offensive to them. Are we going to then eradicate symbols of 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 gayness in American society, like we're now trying to eradicate these symbols that are, seem to be offensive to a certain segment of our society? I I think the answer is. That would be absurd. And yet we can't seem to say to people, this is not the best way to achieve racial harmony and integration. We seem to be almost, if you will, uh, surrendering. And, and that's unfortunate because I think that our country is stronger than that and it's shown uh, greater resilience and greater uh, change uh, than, than perhaps we're giving it credit in 2020. Yeah, well said. Uh, very well said, uh, Bill. And 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 for listeners out there that uh, whether it resonates or not, uh, your commentary is much appreciated. You've got a couple of uh, a couple of writings uh, in the work. Uh, the generals have no clothes. The untold story of our endless wars. It sounds like a fascinating uh, fascinating publication coming uh, via Simon Schuster. And then uh, history in one act and novel of nine eleven. Touch on both of those uh, very briefly for listeners, if you would, Bill. Well, I have my first novel coming out in January. It's a, a, a novel about 9-11. I've been working on it for more than a decade. Uh, it's an oddball of a book. It's, it, it, it's a history, if you will, of, of 9-11, but from the standpoint and the perspective of the terrorists themselves. And it just da- dawned on me. Uh, more than a decade ago, and even more so today, as we come close to the 20th anniversary of 9/11, that it's stunning that we still don't really have a clear understanding of what were the motivations of those 19 men on 9/11, and 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 what motivates so many to want to take up arms against us in the Muslim world. So, uh, I wrote a novel particularly because I wanted to try to tell the story from a different perspective and I felt like I could only do it in novel form uh, so uh, it's called History in One Act, a novel of 9-11 it's being published by a small Chicago publisher called Featherproof Books comes out in January and my Simon & Schuster book was essentially, it's an essay uh, an extended essay on how to end perpetual war uh, the fact that we're continue to fight uh, probably really without even the knowledge of most people because it doesn't affect them in uh, 10 plus countries around the world that on any one day we could be bombing in any one of those 10 countries that we can't seem to ever extract ourselves from Afghanistan or Iraq or now Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Niger, uh, other places around the world that that warfare seems to just continue on no matter who's president, whether that was President Obama who promised that we would end wars in Afghanistan and Iraq or President Trump, who has, uh, even though he's an idiot, has tried very hard to uh, uh, withdraw U.S. forces from Afghanistan, Syria. Now yeah. he's saying, let's 
you know, denuclearize on the Korean Peninsula. Let's let's withdraw forces from Germany, and and liberals who, under normal circumstances, would applaud all of those moves yeah. are against it merely just because Trump is for it. But but it, but again, my point is that it's it shows you the power of the institutions behind this perpetual war and how it just continues. Uh, regardless of who's president. So we've now seen that perpetual war could survive Obama, which means that it's pretty powerful. Uh, and I, I lay out uh, my analysis of the uh, of the people behind perpetual war, and then I give my, my prescription as to how we can wind down these, crises, these wars. Nobel Peace Prize nominee, if, uh, that sounds like the topic there for you, sir. Um, <laughs> William Arkin, uh, WordPress.com is uh, the website that I have for you. And uh, at, at W. Arkin on Twitter for listeners to follow you. Uh, looking forward to inviting you back onto the program. Thank you for joining Discussing the Truth, Bill. Keep up the excellent work. Thank you for having me on today, Ian. Um, if, this is, if this is your first time listening to the program, which you know, I, I hope it. I hope I hope it is, um, because that means uh, perhaps you appreciate uh, the time that Bill and I just took to discuss what we discussed. Um, if this is not your first time and you've heard my voice before or heard my program before, rather, um, thank you for re-listening to me. Um, this is uh, coming up here now on four years. That uh, that I've started this, uh, and 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 I started mainly because I felt that uh, that my voice needed to be heard, and just as much as I know for a fact that your voice needs to be heard. Now, uh, Ray McGovern is a former CIA operative agent. I call it operative agent officer. Uh, he uh, was very high level in the CIA. Uh, it's been been a couple of years now that he's been on the program, but. Uh, but he said, "He said, Ian, this is this is what needs to be happening, uh, because the mainstream new media sources are not giving, not giving time or credence really to those who know what's going on to talk about what's going on." Uh, Bill said it right there: forty years studying uh, warfare. Uh, the military in the United States, a former uh, soldier himself for the Army. Forty years is a lot of time to uh, to be doing what he's been doing, and so uh, your voice in that regard carries just as loudly as anybody else's voice. Um, and in the United States, and I hope that made sense to you, uh, apply to my comment regarding Ray McGovern. Um, Bill knows what he's talking about. So Americans need to, we need to unite and, um, and, and not divide. Um, next week we will be fortunate and receive Gerald Horn onto the program. Let me, let me briefly, before I close out here, uh, just give you a quick, uh, rundown on uh, on Gerald. So, like I'd mentioned earlier, he's uh, got degrees from 
But he's got his PhD from Columbia. Uh, he's got a JD from the University of California, Berkeley, and he's got a BA from Princeton. Yes, he happens to be African-American, to the best of my knowledge. Um, he holds the Moore's Professorship of History in African-American Studies. University of Houston, his research has addressed issues of racism and a variety of relations involving labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, and war. He also has written extensively in the film industry. Uh, you know, one, one of the, two, 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 two of the books, two of the books, give a quick search uh, on your, on your, on your, on your search engine query, whatever your browser may be, um, two of the books that, uh, that I find quite interesting. That he has written. First, uh, Race to Revolution. The United States and Cuba during slavery and Jim Crow. Fascinating, right? Fascinating. So you're looking at global economics, global politics, global warfare. There's an interesting connection between uh, the United States and Cuba. And certainly uh, in Miami. Second book, and how that affects... uh, African-American slave trade and Jim Crow laws. Second, Negro Comrades of the Crown. This is, this is his title. Again, he's African-American. Negro cam- Comrades of the Crown, and he's speaking specifically of the British Crown. African-Americans and the British Empire fight the U.S. before emancipation. So, what sounds like an incredible mind... That he has, he will be joining us next week, uh, and I'll have another special guest uh, following him. It'll be a two-hour episode starting at four p.m. Eastern Standard. The following week, we'll be welcoming back on the program former Fulbright Fulbright Scholar to Brazil and uh, PhD from Oxford, J.P. Linstroth, and he will be bringing back onto the program Brian Knowles with him and uh, two other two other incredible folks who I. Understand, we'll be discussing in panel format with us uh, race in the United States. So, until another week, to uh, to the late uh, Mr. Dennis B. We thank you. This program is dedicated to you, sir. And um, pass this on to a friend. Pass this on to a family member, uh, folks. Thanks for listening. Be awesome.